Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Today we come to this, this phrase here that we Christians, the first label to get your mind and hearts round, he says here, is that you are holy and blameless in his sight. What does it mean? Here we go. The Hebrew word for holy is kodesh. It means apartness, set apartness, separateness or sacredness. I would add that it also means otherness, transcendent, and totally other. Because God is totally above his creation and his creatures, including us. Holy has the idea of heaviness in a good way, or weight of glory. In the New Testament, the word for holy is hagios, and it means set apart, reverend, sacred, and worthy of veneration. So, when I read this description from Paul to this very normal bunch of people in Ephesus, and he says, okay, we've been looking at, you know, casting aside wrong labels. Label number one, here we go, it is that you, you, he's already said that you're a saint, okay, And then in a similar vein, he throws in, you're also holy and blameless in his sight. Now, when I hear this phrase, you are your identity as a Christian, the moment you became a Christian is you became holy and blameless in his sight. Two things happened in my being, in my sight, inside me. Number one, I kind of feel like, uh, what? What the heck are you talking about, Jesus, with respect? Um, the idea that you would say, you know, I'm fairly happy with the idea that God is holy, right? The idea that Paul is saying every single Christ follower is also holy, that actually feels blasphemous to me. You know, I'm much more comfortable with thinking that I'm sinful. I'm a sinner. I feel comfortable with that. It feels holy to say I'm not holy, right? (laughs) It feels like a typo in the Bible when I read that. Paul is saying every single Christian, every single Christian who's truly born again, no matter on your behavior, is holy. All those words I just described, venerated and sacred in his sight. It makes me feel like Um, that God is potentially some kind of almost senile God who doesn't really know me. I mean, ask anyone in my family, would they say, Tom, Tom is holy and blameless in his normal life? No, they would say we love Tom. But one thing, one description I would not tend to use about Tom Shaw is that he is holy and he is blameless. You know, it almost reminds me of like a parent who just has a rose-tinted view of me, who doesn't really know me, you know, who has this unreal view of their children of like, oh yeah, they can't do any wrong. I'm like, 
that's just not true. It is it just me or does anyone else resonate with what I'm saying? Reaction number one is this just doesn't feel accurate. It feels, uh, it feels wrong. But the second reaction in me that also happens is a glimmer of hope. Maybe, just maybe, somehow, in a way, I cannot actually fully mentally get my head around. Maybe somehow... I really am, as a Christian, my Jesus label, every Christian's Jesus label is actually holy and blameless. And the reason that I hope is because of two things. Because of the terrible twins that dominate my life that scream at me that I am not holy and blameless. What are those twins? Twin number one, guilt. What does it mean to be plagued by guilt? It means this voice is in your head. You need to do more. You need to do more. And the other, the other voice that plagues my life, which, which is against the idea of me feeling holy and blameless and good enough, is this, is the voice of shame. The voice of shame. Not so much that you haven't done enough, but you've got you've to you've do more. You've got to be better, rather. Let me get this right. The voice of guilt says you're not doing enough. The voice of shame says you're not good enough. You're not good enough. Guilt says you haven't done enough. And shame says you're not good enough. And when I think about my average day, and I don't know whether you tend to do this, but if you actually move slow enough, to look into your heart as to what voices are often in your heart and in your mind, it's often one variation or another on the voice of shame or guilt with your kids, with your spouse, with your workmates, with your friends, with your parents, with your neighbors. Oh, I, I haven't got anyone to invite to Alpha. What happens? Shame. Guilt. I wonder if any of you felt guilt and shame during the announcement, but you didn't even notice it. I know I can get so used to the twins of shame and guilt. And then I come to this verse and I'm like, I want this to be true. I really, really want to like, I really want to feel holy and blameless. I want that to be like a felt Tom Shaw reality because Jesus Christ came all the way to earth and he even died and he was raised from the dead to give us not just some head truth, but a life truth, eternal life. That's what he is promising. So how on earth do we access it? Well, I think there are three keys that we see in this one verse, in verse four. We need to, number one, look to the Father. That's what Paul says. Write that down. We need to look to the Father. Number two, we need to look to the Son. And number three, we need to look to the cross. Okay, what am I talking about? Look with me here. How do we actually access the truth of how our Father, I mean, think about that. He says, you are now as holy positionally as Jesus. You are as accepted. How does this work? Number one, the first key to accessing, knowing this truth, not just seeing it on a page, is you need to look to the Father. Look with me here at verse 4, right at the beginning. Paul says, for he chose us. First question, who is the he referring to? 
look with me look back the the previous part of the sentence praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing for he you see that it's pointing to the father he chose us in him now this is a really important point first point when did your faith or when did your new status of being holy and blameless begin did it begin the day when you actually whenever it was if you're a christian here today said jesus i want to put my trust in you was that when your faith began no did did your faith begin even with jesus two thousand years ago right surely that's the right answer tom it's always jesus well actually it's not always jesus because to be really accurate verse four says that your your chosenness your holiness and your blamelessness actually began with the father oh the he chose us that is different three persons equal in, in in divinity but they are different persons and it creates a different emotion and a different sense of wonder oh friends your sense your your destiny to being accepted as holy and blameless actually began with the father for he chose us he chose us which means it's meant to produce in us a sense of wonder that number one it means that the father is in control he chose you okay he chose you it says here i love this this is so much fun he says he chose you uh, in the world before the creation of the world just think about that for a moment what picture is coming to mind before god made jupiter as terra virgo always says he had you in his mind i love that it's almost like the spoiler alert the father was kind of excited about creating saturn but even before he did that he chose you it's like yeah i'm pretty excited about making the stars and the planets they're pretty cool but oh my goodness joni tombs oh my goodness angela alford oh robbie briscoe i can't wait till the day when they access my choosing of them even before i made a single planet in the solar system hallelujah come on that is i know you can't unmute it's just too wild but I want to see some movement in the house of God today because that's mind-blowing. He chose you. And look at the word he. The person who does the choosing really matters. I'm sorry, I'm going to blow up this mic by the end of the day. You see, if you're chosen for some startup, say you're looking for a job and the startup that picks you is like desperate and about to go under, the choosing doesn't feel that great, right? Okay, great, they picked me. <laughs> They're desperate. But just imagine Tim Cook the CEO of Apple says, yeah, hi, Mike Davis. We're looking, we, we've heard that you're looking for a software developer job. Mm -hmm. Hi, yeah, so it's Tim here, Tim Cook. And um, we really want to fly you over and give you a job, any job. We'll make a job for you, what you whatever you want to do. We're going to just sort of build it around you because I'm choosing you, okay? It's me. And when we think about the identity of the chooser, it really changes it, right? The father that Jesus never stopped going on about. I mean, every other line Jesus has is about his father, right? Particularly in the Gospel of John. My father, my father, my father. Jesus' greatest passion was his father. And Jesus is telling us through Paul that that same father, he chose you before he did anything else. 
Whoa! You see, when a mighty leader says statements like that, when he chooses you, it's meant to do something to your inner being, your sense of self, and to bring a sense of security and like settledness and authority. I mean, it's not a perfect illustration, but famously, Winston Churchill, during the Second World War, he said to England, he said, do not ask. What can my country do for me? He said, but ask, what can I do for my country? Whoa, do you feel it? He's drawing identity out of the British people to say, there is, if everyone stands strong, we can do this. Now that's Winston Churchill, uh, uh, you know, politically saying something great. Just imagine the king of the universe saying, I am actually specifically, personally, particularly choosing each single one on this call and all of my global church. Woo! This is heady stuff. This is heady stuff when it starts to get into your being, when it starts to fill your spirit. This is incredibly important because I love it. He says here, right at the end, he chose us to make his homeless blameless in his sight. Who is the his? It's the father. Listen, your face needs to be facing his face. That is so huge. That is so huge. You see, all of us, we, when you feel guilt and shame creeping in, it's a horizontal thing that's happening. It's, if you trace it back, guilt and shame, it's ultimately between you and another human. Always, always, always. Now, don't mishear me. When you get things wrong in your marriage or with your kids or with another person, it's real and we can damage each other and you need to be careful and kind in apologizing. But the greatest truth, scandalously, now, as a Christ follower, is that you have received a new identity that your behavior, no matter how big the failure, can never, ever, ever undo. Your identity, box three, is completely irreversible, which is mind-blowing because that's not how we normally operate. But you, therefore, need to metaphorically live your, with your face, your being, facing the face of the father more than the face of others. Let me just give you an illustration. This week, in one day, I did three subtle things that brought shame to me. Just with other people, I just thought, it was just this week, I thought, oh gosh, why did I say that? And why did I do that? And why did me and Josie slightly argue and bicker in front of people? I just felt just embarrassed and just ashamed. Now listen, my normal MO, when I do something that creates shame is a horizontal thing. It means I start thinking, can I, can I contact that other person? And can I say, oh, by the way, Mr. Mr. X, <laughs> yeah, you know that moment when I said that thing. I, I didn't really, really mean it. I wasn't, I'm not really that competitive and pathetic. Um, it just sort of was something else going on. And I just want to make sure that you still see me in that high regard. That's my, how I try and clothe my shame. That's my fig leaves, right? When I'm feeling naked, anyone here identify? It's a horizontal thing. There we go, we all do it. And for the first, literally, I think the first time in my life, I felt the father just say to me, Tom, look at me. Number one, let's admit that what you did came from not a great place. It's not the end of the world, but it, I felt a freedom with my father to admit it. 
If my father has already chosen me and he's put all the eggs in the basket of our friendship and our relationship, never to go back on it. Number one is I can admit and see myself from his perspective. And I actually kind of said, I whispered out loud sitting there at my, at my coffee table. Oh dear. Yeah, I admit it. That was out of my insecurity that I said that thing. Years and years of me trying to cover my shadow. I said that thing. And then number two, after admitting it to the father, I just felt his smile and him say, I'm so patient with you, Tom. You're so impatient with yourself. And, and I'm teaching you. What is love? Love is patient, number one. And it's kind. And I'm always patient and kind with you. And I'm inviting you to agree with my patience and kindness to you. And as I did that, this is what happened. The volume of the guilt and shame, it didn't totally disappear, but it just went down a notch. The other person in my mind's eye that I so wanted to think highly of me just slightly got quieter. And I thought, well, this is going to be a lifetime's pursuit, but I, I think he's teaching me something. Amen? I think he's teaching me that I need to live my face before the face of his face. I need to be facing him in my heart. He has chosen me, number one. And guilt and shame are never from him. Number two, we need to look to the sun. Look with me here. Someone else is now mentioned. And in case you haven't noticed, this passage is incredibly Trinitarian. This opening 220-word sentence by the Apostle Paul, he's an enthusiast, believe me, is, is uh, very Trinitarian. He's talking about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's beautiful. There's this, the Christian faith is not just like one person. It is one God, three persons, which is incredibly profound. A Trinitarian relational God. C.S. Lewis calls it the dance of the Trinity. And he draws us into this community of joy and grace. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. Oh, it's, it's glorious. It's so joyful. Uh, he says, for he, the, the Father, he chose us. Look with me. Look at the next two words. Say them. In him. In him. John Stott says this. In the pre-creation eternity, God the Father did something. He put you and Jesus the Son together in his mind. Ah, oh, I love that. Before the pre, in the pre-existence of this created world, God the Father did something. He put Sean Baldwin and Jesus Christ together in his mind. Whoa, you and I, it's not just that the Father has picked you and his royal dignity and weight in the choosing is powerful in shedding shame. He secondarily placed you with someone who is absolutely, he is, uh, he is determined, even if you're not, to rid you of feelings of shame and guilt to the day you get to glory, which we know as death, he knows as final consummation. When Charles Spurgeon was asked, what's the, the most important day in a person's life, the greatest day? He said, the day you die, because it's the day finally you are joined with your loving father and all guilt and all shame is finally exposed as no longer something that is appropriate for you to live in. And you are now partnered. Woo! You are partnered in him. 
So his two things, two Ps. Why, does, why is this important? His personality and his performance. The personality of Jesus Christ is distinct. I love it. It is his particular presence in your life that is going to change you. You see, if you have a guest in your house, the personality of that person in the house really changes the atmosphere, right? Yeah? If someone comes over that, you know, you love in Jesus, but <clears throat> they're a little bit needy or a little bit difficult, then, it, you know, it's not a bad thing, but it changes the atmosphere. If someone else comes over and they are secure and they are at peace with Jesus, it changes the atmosphere in a very different way. Listen, you and I have been joined forever with a person, Jesus Christ, who has a particular personality. So his actual personality is meant to, hour by hour, day by day, more and more shape how you actually feel. He is profoundly committed to discipling you. You know when you have someone who disciples you, mentor you, they, you become a little like them often. You know, their good, good strengths start to come. Jesus is committed. It says he, he isn't just close to you. It says here that we are in Christ. Now think about this. It's a really helpful way of putting it. It's a major metaphor in the Bible, in the New Testament. When you are prone to feeling shame, it's because you are feeling in another person that you think might be about to judge you and think you haven't done well. There's a particular leader I know of in, in the UK who I really respect, but he's very driven. And although we're, you know, he's polite to me and he is warm, I always get this, my sixth sense just feels like when we talk, he wants me to say stuff that's always kind of impressive. And I'm more I can tell when I'm around him, I'm more tempted to not be totally true and accurate with numbers. And, I can, and it's, I'm not saying it's his fault, but I can feel it like at a spirit level, like, ooh. And I know that if I was just to be honest about struggles, I could feel a, a very subtle sense of shame from him. Now, those kind of people, when you are, if you're affected, if you resonate with what I'm saying, what you're effectively doing is you're being in them. You are allowing their almost presence. You're, you're not, there's not a healthy boundariness. Their presence is almost shaping who, how you are. Does that make sense? And how, and how you view yourself. You could almost allow their potential shame of you if you don't feel like you're performing to infect you. It's the same with guilt. There's certain people who, when I'm with them, I can often feel myself like thinking, am I doing enough for this person? Do they want me to be quiet? Do they want me to, be, do they want me to stand over here? How do they want me? I don't know if this is just me. Maybe you think I'm completely mad, but I can feel myself with certain people. It's almost like the, the psychological term is enmeshed, not to go off on a rabbit trail, but you become almost joined to them and you can feel a constant sense of, am I doing enough for you? Is this okay? And um, this is you being not in Christ. This is you being in them, like practically. So you can actually spend your life like, emotionally joined more to other people and therefore 
fearful of their judgment and therefore shame if you're not performing enough. Some of you have had parents and, and it's almost they just want to hear you say the right thing and be, you know, the strong one all the time because, because otherwise there's a sense of shame if you're struggling. Or there's a sense of guilt. Oh yeah, we haven't seen our, our you know, we haven't seen um, you very much recently. Yeah. You know, they, they just want to say, <laughs> just to make you feel guilty. And, and, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're not in them. You're in Christ, and Christ has a particular personality. He is totally secure, even now. I know this is funny, but this might help. There's a particular person, not on this call, um, who, when I was with him recently, I felt God say, do you notice how secure he is when he's with you? He doesn't always feel the need to um, fill the silence. He's just content. He's comfortable in his own skin. He doesn't need you to prop him up. And I could like feel it. And I felt Jesus say, Tom, throughout your day, picture that man. This guy is unwittingly discipling me. I'm literally imagining his face. And when I think of his face, if I feel anxious or like I'm not doing enough or I'm not performing it, I just think of his face. Now that's like Jesus. Jesus is not ever demanding he is not ever shame bringing he is content and settled okay he doesn't need you to ever do anything he doesn't you get to do good works with him as a privilege but he doesn't need you to hallelujah he is he's god he's secure so his personality but also his performance See, Jesus Christ has given you an identity that is irreversible. Um, Amanda, could we just have up the, uh, the chart? I didn't warn you about this, so if we haven't got it, that's my bad. But if we do have the chart that we've been having up recently, the four-box chart, it's super helpful visually to just um, visually see. Oh, well done, Amanda. Thank you so much. We've been making the point that this visual chart helps us understand our identity super well. There is a fourfold flow of scripture. Starts with who God is, then out of his being, what he's done, and out of that, then we get box three, an identity as a gift, and therefore box four, we then live out of the good of that. Now listen, stick with me. Okay, this is where you can get ready to unmute. I want somebody to unmute and name one non-Jesus label identity that comes to mind. An identity, a label that isn't one that we're looking at from the Bible that you can easily live under. Just quickly unmute and say it. Don't overthink it. The competent one. Thank you, Billy. Okay. So look at box three with me. Okay. This is the, this is the box of identity. When we live in a label that not, is not a Jesus label, when we, are, when we don't live in the good of being, for example, holy and blameless, okay, but the competent label is functionally the one we're living in, box three, what happens with a non-Jesus label is this. Our box four life is absolutely exhausting. You can almost imagine that it's because the box three non-Jesus label of being competent is not a gift, but it needs to be constantly 
constantly worked for, your box for life is constantly, it's almost like it's propping it up, yeah? And that's, if, that's, that's a, classic, um, a classic way of understanding why we feel guilt and shame. So guilt and shame are box four stuff. When so you want to be the competent one, you want to be the competent mum, or you want to be the competent worship leader, or you want to be the competent financial analyst. And so what happens is your box for life is constantly guilt and shame and working and fear and anxiety, right? Because it exists very in a very fragile way. At any moment, if you if you don't work hard enough in box four, it could collapse. Okay, that is all of the labels that the world offers us. They offer, and our box for existence is guilt and shame. Now, what we need to understand is visually, when we look at these Jesus labels, and today we're looking at being holy and blameless, what it means is rather than your identity being something that you have to sustain in a box for way, the way that you get that identity, that box, for, that box threeness, comes in fact from box one and box two it comes in a totally different way your being holy and blameless is not because of your behavior box four being good it comes as a gift because of who god is and what god has done and who he has made you to be jesus's performance is entirely the basis for you being able to say i am now holy and blameless and i'm a saint it is in effect nothing to do with my box fourness it is entirely because of who god is and what god has done which means it can never shift you know if you think with a bot with a with a work with a world non-jesus label the bottom line of that three box is like it's like a trap door at any moment ah! Ah! i fall and i lose my label i'm no longer super mum i'm no longer super dad because my box fullness hasn't supported it but when you start to live oh i am holy and blameless and that sounds crazy but it's because of who god is and what god's done and who he says i now am it, it's all based on the performance of jesus christ and that is totally different i had this experience at the end of last summer where I had just, man, I, we had just, we'd moved into the house here. The summer was going on forever. We were all in the house and I started to lose it with the kids. Not in a really obvious way, but just in a way where I would get snappy and grumpy again and again and again and with Josie. And this is, this is the loop. I would, I would sin. I would be, I would get it wrong. And then I would feel crushing guilt and shame because I love them so much. And, and I would say sorry to them and sorry to Josie and I'd vow to try harder. And then a few hours later or a day would go past and then I would subtly get snappy and grumpy again because I'm tired. And I would then feel crushing guilt and crushing shame. And I would say, I'm so sorry, Josie. I'm so sorry. And this literally happened a lot. And I remember I said, I've just, I am just going crazy here. And I'll be really, I'll be really vulnerable with you for the first time in my life, because of, because of the magnitude of my love for Josie and the girls, my inability to not blow it with my kids led me to feel like I can actually start to see the guilt is so crushing as a father when you're feeling like you're failing your kids. It feels so wrong. I, I, I had the thought of like, I can see why people either leave or they kill themselves. I thought I can see it because the guilt is so horrific 
the guilt of failing your family and feeling like you don't have the firepower to not blow it. So I'm doomed to a life of endless guilt with my beautiful family who I just adore. And I literally had to leave the house and I got in the car and I drove to Land's End in San Francisco and I sat there and there wasn't some big lightning bolt moment, but this is what happened over that time. Somehow in my inner spirit, Jesus's performance, Jesus's personality, his kindness, his patience, and his love for me somehow reassured me, number one, Tom, do you know what? They're actually ultimately my kids, not yours. And number two, you cannot bear the weight of trying to be God to them. You have to get used to the fact that you're going to fail them. And you link your failure to the goodness of the Father. You link your failure to the kindness of Jesus. And as he just, as I felt in my inner spirit over that time, the sense of his grace and his kindness, not denying my failure. <laughs> he wasn't like, oh no, you're being too hard on yourself. He's like, yeah, you're being pretty grumpy and snappy. But you know what, Tom, you ha I'm still here. I'm never giving up on you. And that guilt and that shame is not for you to live under. And, and I just felt him just give me the ability through his personality and his performance. It's like Jesus' performance, box one and two, had given me something that although my box four life was in tatters, not tatters, that's an overstatement, it wasn't great. Somehow in my spirit, I felt his kindness and his gentleness and his sense of patience and dignity restored. So even now, just take a moment before we finish. I'm going to finish with one last quick story and then we'll finish. Is there anyone here? Does anything strike you? I mean, the trouble with Zoom is it's very one way, isn't it? Is there anyone who just wants to just, anything that strikes you that you just feel like, yeah, actually, I, I just want to comment on this thing. Anyone here who resonates with what I'm saying? Anything really that you feel like, I just want to share. Um, I'm just going to say one final thing after that. Any, anyone want to comment so far? Anything jump out at you? Bring you hope, bring you joy, or bring you anything else? Um, I think just considering that he chose us before the foundation of the world and then I was kind of just asking myself, well, why? <laughs> Lord, why would you do that? And I don't know what that is for everyone else, but for me it was because I love you. It's just like kind of a sweet thing. Um, I'm going to cry. But so it's good. just like really, really sweet to be like, well, why would you mm -hmm. do that? And it's because he loves me. So... I don't know what that is for you all, but... Beautiful journey. Thank you. Any other comments? Any other thoughts? I hope it's encouraging. Hey, Tom. Thanks hey, for that Christine. message. Yeah, I was thinking when you were sharing about being at Land's End, just that verse that it's his kindness that leads mm -hmm. us to repentance and not his law or his yeah. rules or guilt that leads us there. Because mm -hmm. I think 
often that can just change behavior for me personally. Mm. Like, well, I'll just change the behavior and it comes back in the heart. But wow. that is so comforting that his kindness leads us to repentance. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I want to just f- say one final thing. My third point, and it's just one story, it's this. We've got to look to the cross. It says here, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And all the commentators on this last bit of the verse, I just can't not mention this, it's too juicy. This idea of being holy and blameless, it would have rung bells, alarm, not alarm bells, like good bells, to any particularly Jew at this time. Because you see, for hundreds of years, the only way you could get rid of guilt and shame before Jesus, the only way, your only hope before a holy God was to go to your priest and to bring your very best lamb. And the priest would look at the lamb and he would check out the lamb. He would look at the legs of the lamb and see if they were broken or if they were good. And the lamb had to be without blemish. It had to be blameless. It had to be perfect. It had to be a really excellent lamb. He would check the fur. He would check the lamb. And this was the moment. He would then, if the lamb was good enough, he would look at the person, the couple who came with their guilt, with their shame, and he would say, hey, guys, good news. The lamb's good enough. The lamb is good enough. And that's incredible because, listen, let me ask you this question to finish. In that picture that you have in your mind now of that couple, that single person bringing the lamb, that was God's way of getting rid of guilt and shame. Where was the focus of the priest in that moment? Was the focus of the priest on the people and how guilty they felt and how much they really want, you know, the the earnestness of repentance? Was that the defining thing that led to them being declared not guilty? No, no. Focus was on the lamb. Focus was always actually on the lamb, not on the people. Could have said, oh, look, you don't understand, Mr. Priest. I'm, I, I feel really terrible. I feel really guilty. I'm feeling shame, guilt for this. And he would have said, yeah, yeah, okay, thanks for letting me know. That's fine. But I'm actually looking at the lamb right now. My, it's all about the lamb. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that you're honest about that. I appreciate that, Tom. But I really need you to just focus on the lamb because it's all about the lamb. Because if this lamb is not good enough, I'm afraid it doesn't matter how bad you feel. It's, it's all about the lamb. And, 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 and the, he would be like, the focus is always on the lamb. The scandal of the Christian gospel is it is never about how bad you feel. It is never about how much you earnestly tear your clothes and express your repentance. The way that a sinful person can ever become holy and chosen and blameless is because the focus was at the cross of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, the focus was on the lamb. Hallelujah. The focus wasn't on the the level at which we felt bad. The focus was on the lamb. It is on the lamb now, and it will always be on the lamb. That that is why we can know a lightness of joy and a lightness of yoke, like that couple who tasted it, or that single person coming before the priest. We say, Jesus, you behold the, 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 the sinless, perfect lamb because of your perfection, your life, your sinlessness means that I can scandalously be counted free. 
it's it's just incredible i love that the focus of the priest was never ultimately on the people it was always on the quality of the lamb and you can imagine that couple going high-fiving rejoicing our lamb's good enough our lamb's good enough we're free from guilt and shame because of the gift of god's system set up through the lamb that was slain through jesus christ friends this is the gospel it is it is ultimately about the work of Jesus Christ, his goodness, his mercy, that we can rejoice and receive a, a label that will never be taken off us, no matter how much our behavior at times doesn't line up with the dignity of that which we've been given. What a scandal, what a gracious gift. Over to you, Sean, let's worship. <laughs> 